Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Were There Any Good Times in Medieval Ireland? Most of the podcasts I have made to date focus on the darker aspects of medieval life. War is a common theme and famine is never far away. So in this show I am asking and hopefully answering the question Was life in medieval Ireland ever better than this? Now I think a good place to begin is to imagine if a historian from the future travelled to Ireland in 2014, inquiring was life ever better than it is today. Before we could even begin to answer the question, we would need to know better in comparison to what. Likewise, to make any judgement about life in the past, we need to compare it to another period. In this show, I am going to compare life in and around medieval Dublin in the 1320s to life a century earlier. To compare medieval society to modern life would not be fair as the two are completely different. We will begin with a look at some bleak times in Ireland's medieval past and then look at what I think were definitely better times. So to start we need to go to the year 1326. One of the major scandals in medieval Dublin in the mid-1320s was the conviction of the Archbishop of Dublin, Alexander de Bicknor, for forgery. This was big news. It also had massive ramifications for thousands of people who were tenants of the Archbishop across Dublin. After his conviction, all of de Bicknor's lands, which were the possessions of the Archbishopric of Dublin, were seized by the King's officials. Now this came to around 25,000 acres of land. When the Crown seized these territories, they immediately set about valuing them. This valuation took place on March 14, 1326, when tenants from the Archbishop's farms, known as Manors, came to the city of Dublin to testify as to what condition the manors they lived in were in and what they were worth. 
The picture presented of the Archbishop's lands, most of which were in Dublin and Wicklow, was a vision of an apocalyptic wasteland. But then again, the history of Dublin between 1315 and 1322 had been like a chapter from the Book of Revelation. War, famine, terrible weather and disease had ravaged the region and this was obvious in the valuation in 1326. Farms were under attack from rebels, buildings were in ruin, huge tracts of land were barren and indeed in some coastal areas the sea was flooding the land. To see exactly what this meant on a local level we need to look at the report from one manor, that of St Sepulchre and Colonia which stretched south from the Archbishop's St Sepulchre's Palace at New Street just outside the city walls to Colonia or Collinswood in the modern suburb of Ranala. Covering over 3,000 acres, it was among the most valuable the Archbishop possessed and indeed was a good barometer of what life was like in Dublin in the early 14th century. On March 14, 1326, Roger Neal, Richard Harper and 19 other tenants from Colonia arrived in Dublin to tell what can only be described as a tale of woe. Starting their valuation of the St Sepulchre and Colonia Manor outside the walls of Dublin, they described halls, kitchens and churches on the verge of collapse, while the manor prison at St Sepulchre's Palace was described as being badly broken and thrown down. Once they moved away from the city, the situation only got worse. At Colonia, about one and a half miles from the medieval city walls, where the suburb of Ranla is located today, there was another hall described as being thrown down. A chamber for the Archbishop with a chapel described as being of no value, while the kitchens, granary and stables there were all in disrepair. The actual farmland of the manor was in an equally pitiful state. At Colonia, much of the land was described as exhausted and poor. What land could be used was valued at only six pence an acre, which, as we shall see, was pitiful. Woodlands at Colonia, which were carefully managed and a valuable source of timber, were deemed to be of no value because they were said to be near what were described as evildoers. These evildoers may have been Gaelic Irish rebels or Anglo-Norman outlaws. Whomever they were, they were clearly causing havoc. They may indeed have been the same people who had been attacking travellers six years earlier in lands to the south of the city and had been the subject of a letter from the Mayor of Dublin to the King in 1320. But even aside from the so-called evildoers, the area had been plagued by war for over a decade and this may explain the ruinous state of some of the buildings. When a Scottish army had invaded Ireland in 1315, the army raised to defend the colony had rampaged through Colonia. They had ransacked the manor gardens, which were described as being worthless afterwards. Even after the defeat of the Scots in 1318, peace had not returned. The colonists in much of South County Dublin began a struggle for survival as the Gaelic Irish were expanding their influence from the nearby Wicklow Mountains. This was obvious in 1326. At a place called Bowley Minor, near Colonia, the valuation stated that the serfs could no longer stay on the lands at night in fear of attack. Pestilence was also impacting life. Strangely though, it was not a pestilence of humans, but of cows. In 1321, a disease broke out and killed probably around 50% of cattle in Ireland. 
and this probably explains why, five years later, in 1326, some pasture was said to be only worth one penny per acre for want of beasts. This landscape, devoid of cows, with buildings collapsed, barren land and a population living in terror, might seem like hell on earth, but strange as it may sound, there was people living in worse situations. The Archbishop also held remote estates deep in the Wicklow Mountains, which was now the epicentre of the struggle between the Gaelic-Irish and the Anglo-Norman colonists. More unsettling than the bleak report of Roger Neil and his fellow tenants at Colonia was the lack of a report from the manor of Castle Kevin. It appears from the silence in the record that the colonists there had finally lost their struggle and the Gaelic-Irish had overrun the manor. Indeed, if you want to hear the full story of this, check out the podcast Castle Kevin, Life and Death on a Medieval Frontier. Terrifying as this crisis-ridden society sounds, life in medieval Ireland hadn't always been like this. The land needed to have been once fertile before it could be described as exhausted and poor. Indeed, relatively recently, as late as 1288, the Archbishop rented 65 acres of pasture in Colonia to David de Callan for 17 pence an acre. That's over three times the best prices mentioned in 1326. Indeed, one of the main sources of the destruction across Dublin in 1326 was the ever-growing conflict between the Gaelic-Irish and the colonists in Wicklow. But this too was a relatively recent development. Anglo-Norman and Gaelic interaction in the wider Dublin region had not always been one of constant warfare. Indeed, in 1264, a man called Adam Woodford had agreed to marry a Gaelic-Irish woman called Agatha O'Toole, who was the daughter and heir of a man called Mailer O'Toole. While one marriage doesn't tell us much, it is only one of the hundreds if not thousands recorded. For me, I think the most interesting thing about this marriage is the first names of the Gaelic-Irish people mentioned, Agatha and her father Mailer. These are both Anglo-Norman first names and are indicative of the prolonged and peaceful coexistence that existed between Gaelic-Irish and Anglo-Norman communities to the extent that they were culturally influencing each other. Even more interesting is the cultural influence in the opposite direction, from the Gaelic-Irish to the Anglo-Normans. In 1297, a parliament of Anglo-Normans noted that their fellow colonists wear Irish clothing and, having their heads half-shaved, grow their hair long at the back of the head and call it a coulon, conforming to the Irish both in dress and appearance. In such times where interaction and more peaceful times of coexistence had occurred, this led to a very different picture of medieval society, far from the hellish environment recorded in 1326. This episode started with a very bleak portrayal of life in Ireland in the 1320s by looking at the manor of St Sepulchre and Colonia. This situation was replicated all across South County Dublin, which was known in the Middle Ages as the Vale of Dublin. While venturing into the Vale in 1326 was nothing short of taking your life into your hands. A century earlier, it was quite different. There was little or no large-scale violence between the Gaelic-Irish and the Anglo-Norman settlers, and indeed for about 100 years after the Norman conquest of the 1170s, it was very peaceful, indeed probably the most peaceful part of Ireland. 
Now, while this might not seem like much to us, to live in a society free from frequent warfare, this was a luxury that many people in medieval Ireland did not know, and certainly something few knew from the 14th century onwards. I think, in peaceful times, such as the early 13th century, the Vale of Dublin would have been a pretty decent place to live. The picturesque Wicklow Mountains rose away to the south, while the land was very fertile. It was located close to Dublin and surrounding ports, so it was easy to export surplus goods to markets in England and across northern Europe. Now, one man who would have known the Vale in these peaceful times was an Anglo-Norman settler called Hugh de Legge. In 1234, Hugh was the Sheriff of County Dublin, a position which brought with it many responsibilities. You see, across Dublin, there were several manors owned directly by the king rather than sublet to a noble, and it was up to Hugh to collect the revenues from these lands. Now, among the manors that Hugh had to visit was that of Newcastle Lyons in the Vale of Dublin, situated 15 miles southwest of the city close to the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains. While Newcastle Lions would become a beleaguered outpost of Norman Ireland in the mid-14th century, this was not the case in 1234. Indeed, when Hugh de Legge passed through the Vale of Dublin, en route to Newcastle Lions, he traversed through a rich region with fields of wheat, oats, barley, peas, beans and many other crops. He also passed through villages and hamlets which housed Anglo-Norman colonists living side by side with Gaelic Irish people who lived in the Norman territories. Indeed, the peasants that hewed a leg passed in the fields as he made his way to the manor of Newcastle Lyons probably had a better life than many peasants in England. One of the most exacting things in a peasant's life was the labour service they owed to their lord. This was in effect a rent paid not for in money but in part at least in labour. In some regions of England, this could be as high as 100 days each year. In Ireland, however, peasants usually owed less than a dozen days of labour, leaving them large amounts of free time. These better conditions were offered in Ireland, probably to make the colony here more attractive to settlers. While it was increasing lawlessness that created the depressing society in 1326 with buildings and infrastructure in ruins, this was not the case in 1234. As Hugh de Legge made his way to Newcastle Lions, he would have passed well-kept barns, granaries, churches and mills. Across the countryside, he would also have encountered rabbit warrens where rabbits were farmed, dovecots, fish ponds, herb gardens, orchards and commercial woodlands. Literally, the Vale of Dublin was a hive of activity. On arriving at Newcastle Lions, de Legge would have found what was just one of the many prosperous settlements in the Vale of Dublin. In 1234, when he submitted accounts for the revenues received from the manor, it seemed a world away from St Sepulchre's and Colonia in 1326. Rents of £69 were gathered from the tenants, while a further £30 was accrued from the sale of oats grown on the manor. On top of this, the mill at Newcastle brought in a further £4 in revenue. Perhaps, though, it's the smaller amounts brought in that give us a picture of what life was like. And indeed, it's far from that apocalyptic vision of Dublin in 1326. 14 pounds was collected from the sale of wool, cheese, sheepskins and cowhides. 
Although a minor amount of money compared to the rent brought in, this gives us some idea of what activities took place in years of peace. If Hugh de Legge had visited the manor in spring, he would no doubt have seen sheep being sheared, while if he came later in the year, in August or September, preparations for the harvest would have been underway. Once produced, all these goods would be sold at fairs in the surrounding region. At Dublin City, the fair was held during the summer and perhaps it was here that the wool from Newcastle was sold. But it was too early for the harvest as it would not have been yet ready. The grains from harvest were probably sold through one of two major fairs near Newcastle at Maynooth in September or Nace which took place in October. For everyday life like this, to continue, be it gathering the harvest or rearing lambs and sheep for wool, was dependent on peace. Indeed, producing a surplus to sell at fairs, let alone getting it to and from these fairs, would become increasingly difficult as war became common in the early 14th century. Perhaps, though, the most obvious symbol of the better conditions that existed in Ireland in the early 13th century was the absence of fortifications across the landscape. While large castles were relatively common by the mid-13th century. Few towns were fortified with walls. This was only something that would happen in the late 13th century when increasing instability dictated that they were necessary. The lack of walls, or certainly rather when they were built, must have transformed life in medieval towns and were just one indication that life was getting more and more difficult. When these defences were built in large numbers, in the last quarter of the 13th century, they must have made towns much darker and claustrophobic places. Just imagine if you live in a town where once you looked out onto a rolling landscape and then you're faced with a grey stone wall that could be over 20 feet tall. It must have been really depressing. While something like a wall might seem small, it was symbolic of the change taking hold in Ireland. It represented the beginning of the end where daily life in the Vale of Dublin could function normally as war and famine became increasingly common and in 1315, as we have seen, things nosedived after the Scots invasion of Ireland making the region one of the worst places imaginable. So now to return to that opening question. Were there any good times in medieval Ireland? I think we can look at the ability to live relatively peaceful lives in the region surrounding Dublin in the early 13th century and say yes, there were. That brings another show to an end, but don't forget if you have any suggestions for future episodes, contact me at Irish History on Twitter or Irish History Podcast on Facebook. Finally, if you want to contribute and help out with the show, it's really easy. Just go to irishhistorypodcast.ie and click donate. Until next time, Sloan. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 